0: Praise God. Last week I mentioned that this would be a two-part sermon. But I, so I want to remind you of what we were considering last week. Last week we started, I've started by mentioning the great need of humanity. This great, the greatest need of humanity is the knowledge of God. And last week we considered primarily how it is that this great need should affect us, the children of God? How is it that we should engage as we go out into a world that is desperately needful of salvation? How is it that we should be affected by it? We saw how Paul uh, was deeply affected by the idolatry of Athens. And the point of last week's sermon was to show that actually London... Is modern day athens wherever the lord has placed us it is an athens and the point was to ask ourselves how is it that it affects us how is it that you are affected by the the lostness of society around you today we will look particularly not so much at the context and the circumstances uh, of Paul's ministry in Athens, but I want us to look at the Paul, uh, Paul's ministry specifically. The sermon he preached at, uh, in the Areopagus, in the in Mars Hill, as uh, some translator translations call it, and it is a, a very particular, singular passage. It is, I presume, or I believe, the only time in the book of Acts that Paul engages with educated Gentiles. And it is very important because we are to learn, we are to see and be instructed by it uh, in our own day. Paul had already engaged with Gentiles in Lystra in his first missionary journey, but they, they were not as educated i don't want to call them uneducated but they were not as educated as the gentiles here in Athens the capital of culture the capital of 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 wisdom and it is a very significant passage personally if you don't mind saying me saying this because it is a passage that has often been the at the center of many of my Engaging with other Christians, so much so that this passage has become one of the passages that I feel more personally attached to. What do I mean i was I came to the doctrines of grace in an Armenian church, and you wouldn't be surprised uh, to know that many of the the debates and many of the controversies and many of the discussions that I had uh, in that context were about Calvinism and the doctrines of grace, and so it is one of those things that becomes dear to you just by the sheer engaging with it. Another thing that came about from being in that church is that it was a a brethren church, and I don't suppose you know, but if you, you don't I'll tell you, brethren churches tend to have a certain disdain for theological learning. As if theological learning is this high, cold, sterile thing, you don't study, you shouldn't study and one of the particular points as I was a young man trying a young uh, uh, man trying to uh, learn more and engaging with with the with the brethren in the, in the church with the elders, was that you often would Hear something like this. Well, we know that theology is very bad. Bible says that the, the letter kills. They would also quote the letter kills, but the spirit uh, gives life. And they would go and say, oh, look at the example in the, in the, in the, in the word of, of God. When, when Paul tried to, to be this whole uh, educated, theological, uh, mumbo-jumbo, they would say. And his ministry was a failure in Acts 17. And they were hardly alone. As I was preparing to preach this message, you read commentaries, and you find that actually there are not a few commentators that look at Paul's ministry in Athens and kind of cast a, 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 a cloud of, of negativity to his ministry, as if what it, he what it did here was... To be seen as a bad example of, uh, of a, a model of evangelizing. They say that Paul learned his lesson here, that Paul uh, preached this more theologically, uh, culturally rich sermon, and that therefore. Uh, or that the rea- the result was not that great. Only a few believed, and that it changed. One particular commentator then points to to uh, to Paul's statement to the Corinthians when he says that he determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and he says, "Oh, this is Paul." learning from his mistake in athens and he's now when he comes to corinth he, he wants to to keep it more simple he wants to. he, he doesn't want to engage in in, in this co- kind of uh, cultural uh context i don't think that's what paul tries to say and i don't think paul was wrong here not least of which because people were saved few but people were saved Another way that I've engaged or that this passage is very dear to me, and we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go through the sermon, is that through seminary, I had a a few conversations, one of them with a a preaching professor, nonetheless, in which the, the point that he was trying to make was that, oh, Paul didn't use the Bible in Acts 17, neither should we. We're not uh, obligated to use the Bible. We need to learn from Paul to, 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 to be culturally relevant. And, and, and yes, there is certainly a lot we can learn from Paul's engagement here. But I don't think it is the point that is being made here is that we shouldn't use the Bible. The point that is being made here, as uh, we'll see, is that we should engage with those people around us At their point of start, at their starting point, at the at the at the point where they are, because as you perhaps those of you who know your Bibles a little bit better, as you read through the sermon, you realize that this sermon is firmly based on biblical revelation. First of all, this is not a, a an accurate. Uh, representation of the whole sermon. I do believe that Luke here is uh, summarizing the main points of the sermon. Paul did not speak only for four minutes or 40 seconds, that is, uh, in the areopagus I'm almost positive, I'm certain even, I would say no, I'm certain that Paul spoke for, for more than this, that this is not a, a, a verbatim uh, manuscript of the sermon that Paul preached there. As often is the case with, uh, with, uh, with Luke, he gives us a summary, he gives us the main points he, uh, as, a, as an historian. But this sermon, even this small bit or this summary of the sermon or the, the points that it touches upon, it's steeped in biblical truth, in biblical language, in biblical revelation. His argument begins with God as the creator, and he finishes with God as the judge of all. That's the message of the Bible. We just read Psalm 149. It is the same message there. God is the judge, and he will judge. So what do we make, before we come to consider some of the points here, what do we make of this uh, difference? Certainly, no one here would deny this, Paul's message in Athens is different from Paul's message in Berea, the place where he just came from. Although we don't have the record uh, of, uh, of the particular contents of the message of Paul in Berea, we have his contents of the, his message in other places, and it is different it starts in a, in a different place. Where are we to make of this? The best way I can describe it, if you allow me an illustration, is by imagining, and it's not even a, a far-fetched illustration, it's a very uh, close uh, illustration to what Christians do, we are called to lead people to Christ, right? Right? That is our message, the Great Commission, Christian. What is it? Go out into the, all the world, make disciples of all nations. That is our message. That is our task. We are called to guide people to Christ, teaching them, leading them. If you allow me to take that metaphor and just uh, apply it slightly differently to bring the point home, let's say that your task to lead someone. I, I've just been in Manchester uh, a couple of, for a couple of days. Let's say your task to leading someone. Uh, guiding someone to Manchester and you have two people to guide there one of them is in Birmingham and the other one is in London necessarily as you're trying to guide the people to to Manchester those two people to Manchester it's going to look different at some point, the way is going to be the same, but if you're guiding someone to go to Manchester from London, you're going to first, uh, wherever they are in London, perhaps take them to the M25, and from the M25 up to. No, oh, M25, M40, right? Help me out. M40, and then Birmingham, and from Birmingham, M6 to, to Manchester. That's the. For the sake of the illustration, I know there's many roads that can go to Manchester. But let's say that's the only one, because spiritually speaking, there is only one way. Don't, don't milk this illustration to the point of heresy, please. Uh, you would be a very lousy guide if you had someone in London and you started giving him directions from Birmingham. And you go, oh, you need to go in, on the M6 northbound. And the person goes, The what? i don't know where the m6 is you need to con- to contextualize or you need to know the starting place of the person and you need to go oh you're in london you still haven't arrived at birmingham let me first take you to birmingham and then from birmingham to manchester that's that's very much how we should see our ministry to this world yes we'll come across Increasingly or decreasingly so, but we'll come across people who are perhaps already in Birmingham. A Roman Catholic has a little bit of a a sense of the authority of Scripture. He knows about Jesus, he knows uh, about sin, and he knows about all of this. Uh, But increasingly so, we're finding that we live in a society less like uh, Jerusalem and more like Athens, and we often ask ourselves, even if we don't voice it in our own heads, even if we don't uh, actually uh, know this, we are often asking ourselves when we are trying to reach our co-workers, our neighbors, our, our family members around the dinner table, how is it that I can go about bringing this person to Christianity? How, how do I go about telling this person about God? How is it that the Lord wants me to reach this person? I think this Paul's sermon shows us the point of start with a biblically illiterate society. Where is it that Paul begins? Where does a Christian begin? Where is the point of contact? Well, creation, Paul says. That's the point of contact. The world in which we live is not some kind of world that uh, acts as a veil or as a curtain to hide God. No, the invisible things are, of God are seen, the invisible attributes of God are seen visibly in creation. The, far from the world in creation being a veil, a curtain over God, uh, uh, that masks God, Creation perfectly represents God, reflects him perfectly. Not completely, don't get me wrong. There are certain things about God that we need special revelation, that we need scripture, that we need a spirit. But the, there are things in creation enough things in creation for no one, for everyone to be inexcusable as paul says you're inexcusable creation shows you that god exists and you know this that's what paul where paul commences so let's say you meet an atheist i'm not saying you should say this to him directly like this but you say well i don't believe you are an atheist why as John Blanchard uh, titled his book, uh, Does God Believe in Atheists? And the answer is no. The Bible does not believe in atheists. There is no such thing as an atheist. Atheist. Everyone in their hearts knows that, knows that there is a God. They just suppress that truth. But everyone has a sense of justice. Where do you think the sense of justice go- comes from? If we're just random atoms uh, and, and stardust colliding with one another, why, why if in your worldview, why would there be a just uh, system? We're just random atoms colliding with one another. But even the sense of justice that we have, that's not fair. That's not right. It comes from a knowledge that God exists. That there is such a thing as fairness, that there is such a thing as perfect justice. This passage is valuable to us in our day and age. As I submitted to you and as I'm convinced of this, we are living in a society very much like the the Athens of Paul's day, in more ways than one. We have our own Epicureans. We have our own Stoics. We have our own society. that, that, that say, You ever cross, come across someone that says, Oh, I'm not sure if God exists. But even if he does, we cannot know him. Well, that's Epicureanism for you. Even if God exists, they're too far away to be reached. They're too far away to be touched. They're too far away to be interacted with. That's agnosticism, right? I'm an agnostic people call themselves in our days. This passage is valuable to us. How to reach a biblically illiterate society. So the first step is know your audience, know who you're talking to. Are you talking with someone who has some Bible knowledge? Are you talking with someone who does recognize uh, the existence of God? Are you talking with someone who doesn't? Your message will have to look different. Not Look, the content is the same. Don't get me wrong. And as we'll see, the content of Paul's message to, to Athens is the same content as the, Paul's message to Berea, to Thessalonica, to Philippi. It's the same message that he will preach in Corinth, that he will preach for the rest of his life. It's not changed. It doesn't change. It's Christ and him crucified. That's the only message that we have to preach. But it looks different. And the best way I can perhaps describe this, I heard someone say it yesterday on, as I was listening to something on the way back, think about different cuisines in the world. Chicken is eaten very much in every culture in the world, right? Everyone, every culture, Portuguese have cuisine has chicken, English cuisine has chicken, you go to South America, they cook chicken, and they go, you go to Africa, they cook chicken. Chicken is eaten everywhere. But it tastes different. The, the, the way it's cooked, the spices, it's introduced. It is the same food, just has a different uh, way of preparing it, a different way of uh, presenting it, sometimes even a different way of uh, eating it. And again, don't milk this illustration to the point of heresy, But many ways, the message we preach is the same. And in, in many ways, the message we preach needs to be different depending on the person we're preaching to. On the person we're trying to reach. If you're trying to reach a Roman Catholic, it needs to be different, if you're try, uh, as, uh, in comparison, if you're trying to reach an atheist. The message you're proclaiming is the same, the content is the same, the, the method of preparing it, the, 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 the spices you introduce, I say, are different. The scope or the method is different, while the content and the, and the goal and the end point is the same. There is only salvation found in Christ Jesus. And it is important for us to see this. Although Paul here starts by mentioning the religious worship of the Athenians, is in no ways asserting that their religious worship is correct, or is valid or is truthful. He's not saying to them, oh, well, we're all worshiping the same God. It's very much the contrary. Paul, as he starts his sermon, uh, as he starts to proclaim the message to them, he is in a collision course with their worldview. They believe something. Paul knows this. And Paul knows that they're wrong. And he's on a collision course of telling them, you're wrong. He's not trying to uh, assert and to agree with them. Just trying to capture the audience and tell them, you say this, you have this unknown God that, that you worship in this temple here. Let me tell you about the unknown God then. The God that you know is there, but you don't know him. Let me know, make him known to you. That's what Paul says to them. He's not saying that they're uh, uh, in their ignorance worshiping the God of the Bible by having that temple. He's just using it as a prop, as a starting point. He's not asserting their worship. He's not asserting the validity of their worship. Paul did not not begin by saying, oh, well, Christianity and and Greek religion, they're basically the same. It's just another way. Uh, But my one is slightly better than yours. It's slightly more advanced or sophisticated than yours. So listen to me. No, Paul is saying from the beginning, there is no way that you're worshiping the God of the Bible. There is no real connection, in fact, between the unknown God of that altar and the God of the Bible. And true, as my theology preaching teacher or professor was trying to say, true, Paul does not use the Bible here. Or does he? Yes. Yes. Paul does not go to them and say, my brothers and sisters or my friends, can you open your Bibles to the Athenians, to Genesis? They didn't have Bibles. He does not even go, oh, you know what, what Moses said to, to, in the book of Genesis. No, they didn't know what Moses said in the book of Genesis. Despite all their learning, they didn't know the Old Testament. But that does not mean that Paul is not using the Bible. He's intensely using the Bible. He's beginning at Genesis. He's not beginning at, in philosophical uh, diatribes and, and discussions. He's not going. Look at what he doesn't do. We often, when, we're meeting, when we meet um, an unbeliever, an atheist, we often devolve into this kind of trying to prove that God exists. Paul doesn't do that, does he? He's being biblical about it. Does the Bible try to prove that God exists? No. The Bible asserts it. Genesis 1.1. That's perhaps one of the most controversial things in this world. In the beginning, God. God exists. And Paul doesn't try to prove that God exists. Paul tells them that God exists. And yes, the Epicureans would have massive problems with what Paul is saying here, even at the start. The God who made the world and everything in it. The God who is deeply involved in matter. Paul did not buy into their skepticism or into their, unbel- into their unbelief. You believe that God doesn't exist. You atheists say that God doesn't exist. Well, let me tell you, God doesn't believe in- that atheists exist. Everyone knows Everyone can see through creation that God exists. It was something that, was, that happened in the French Revolution. One of the main motivators or one of the main goals of the French Revolution was to tear down any kind of religiosity. They went into this, to the cathedrals and to, to Notre Dame in Paris and they tried to tear down everything of religiosity. They thought we need to get rid of this because we've evolved. We don't need religiosity anymore. We're, we're not this kind of superstitious uh, uh, creature, Now we, we have evolved, so we're, let's tear down the steeples, let's tear down the, 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 the religious ornaments. Let's take the crosses out of school. It's not, like, not that I think that we should have crosses. Uh, let's, that's the sentiment, right? Let's take all the, the monuments to the Ten Commandments. In America there was a controversy. There was a, a monument to the Ten Commandments in front of a, count, uh, uh, a town hall or something, and people wanted to take it down because we've evolved, right? We don't need this religiosity superstitious thing. Well, are you going to rip the stars off the sky as well? You might try and take the steeples, you might try and take the pews, you might try and take the churches away from the city. You might as well try and rip the stars off the sky. Because the stars proclaim the glory of God. You cannot deny it. You can suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, but you cannot deny it. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, he says, In truth, in the absolute sense, nothing is atheistic. No one can be atheistic. Everywhere you look, in, in the galaxies, the fingerprints of God are present. In the smallest of atoms, in the quarks, I think now, I'm, I'm not a physician, or, but apparently now they've discovered that even this, the atom, the smallest thing that we knew existed before, can even be broken down further. That everything is infinitely uh, to be broken down. And there's a philosophy here as well, but let's not get into it. Even the smallest of, quark, of quarks has the, God's autograph in it. You cannot deny it. Well, you can't try to deny it, but you know it is true. And yes, Paul does not begin by quoting Genesis 1 1. Paul does not go immediately after to Psalm 14, verse number 1. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Paul, Paul does not go there, but that's basically what he's telling them. He's showing to them the foolishness of their wisdom. How you say? How can you say, especially the Epicureans, in this case? How can you say that God is uh, uh, the gods are so far removed that they have no business, even if there are gods, we cannot know them? That's foolishness. Look at creation. Look at the promise. Look at the fact that He sustains everything, that He gives to all life breath and all things. You are corrupted, he says. You are fools. You are corrupted in your thinking. You think you're so smart. You think you're so educated. You think you're so advanced and evolved. And yet you deny the, the greatest of all truths right in front of your eyes. Isn't that the case even today? Someone was sharing in, a, in, a, in our church's WhatsApp group uh, that, that quote, I don't know if it was a quote, Stephen uh, Hawking, right? Uh, That that, uh, nothing needed the universe to exist, so uh, nothing created the universe. Was something like this, right? I don't think he said it like that. It's probably not a quote, but it's an accurate representation of what the atheists of this world believe: that nothingness exploded and created everything that we see. That uh, uh, singularity that no one knows how it came to being created everything when it exploded. And then you wonder, brothers and sisters, then you wonder why this world is so messed up. The greatest question of philosophy, what is it? The the first question that every student of philosophy has to deal with. What is life? What is the meaning of life? What is, If life has no source, the meaning of life is meaninglessness, right? If life has been created out of nothing, if we're all just random particles of cosmic dust colliding with one another, life is meaningless. It begins with meaninglessness and it ends in meaninglessness. Isn't that what we teach our children in our schools? Ultimately, isn't that what we tell them? that there is no meaning to the beginning of the universe, there's no meaning to the end of the universe, eventually all the the energy will fizzle out and the universe will become one cold, empty space because the the galaxies are moving further apart from one another and all, all energy will be gone. And at one point, no more stars will shine and everything will die out. Meaninglessness. Isn't that what we tell our children? Isn't that what we are listening Some of you kids are here every day in your science classes. The teacher says to you something like that. And then you wonder. Then you wonder why suicide rates are, so, are through the roof. Why are we having to deal with suicidal thoughts in our children. Well, if you tell them that the world means nothing, that everything is completely uh, random, of course they will find no meaning in their lives. We tell them that the, the start of our existence, is uh, the start of, of everything is meaningless, and you tell them that the end of everything is meaningless. You, of course they're just going to live, and, and, and uh, for, for the moment, what's the point? Let's just do whatever comes to mind. And to be honest, I think the only appropriate response to this is not an intellectual response. Right? I'm not, I'm not, cons- not going to devote time to trying to deal with a fool that says something like this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, you're a fool. I'm not going to deal with it. You said that nothing exploded and created everything. In this case, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Lest in his eyes he becomes wise. You're not wise. That's what Paul is saying to them. You're not wise. You, you have all these uh, this high views of your cultural and, and intellectual highness. You're not that intellectual. You're a fool. In our society... It's an HGV going down the hill and there's no brakes. It's only by the goodness of God that we haven't hit the wall yet. But we're going to hit it. It's only because we still have something of the moral fruits of a Christian culture that things haven't gone off the the rails yet. Well, actually, it's only because of the goodness and forbearance of God that we haven't devolved and destroyed ourselves in the process. I was I was I don't like to watch TV. <laughs> I find that watching TV live TV is very hard to filter out. You get everything, and, it, you, and it's hard to to filter out those things that are not good for ourselves. We, pack, we we shouldn't. There's many things that we shouldn't watch, especially when you're watching TV. You you. You kind of get whatever they put in front of you. So I I tend to more to spend when I want to have some leisure time, spend some time uh, on YouTube or just watching um, stuff that I can curate a little bit better. There's this one YouTube channel that I've been interested in recently um, that kind of picks up the the crimes that have been committed in uh, in society here in England. It's an English... YouTube channel and he picks up on different kind of situations and and crimes and goes and analyzes the the court records after the judgment was passed and just gives a a brief summary in five minutes of the whole thing. I was watching it yesterday and it's sickening, sickening to to the to the depths of the stomach. This situation that happened late last year. An Uber driver well, two kids out on the streets, very well behaved kids, no criminal record, no problems with authorities. How to having a good time. It's Halloween weekend, they are going to the, to the club with their friends, they go out for what they apparently now is the tradition, you go out for pre-drinks, you get yourself wasted before you go to the club so that then you don't spend all your money uh, in the club, that's what they do. And they were somewhere, and they wanted to get to the club. So the this kid, one of the uh, late teens, uh, young young twenties, uh, calls an Uber. Very responsible, calls an Uber to get to the to the club. But probably because he was drunk, we don't know. He puts on the 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 name of the club, but just so happens that there is another establishment in that city that goes by that name. So he booked the Uber to go to the wrong place. And when they realized that the Uber had brought them, the driver had brought them to the wrong place, they, get, they got upset with him. A fight ensued. This man who knew nothing about it got beaten, placed in a coma, and died a, a couple of weeks later. These two boys, they were not delinquents, drug-related. They were not uh, gangs. They were just two regular boys going out to have a, a nice time. And they do this. And you wonder why. It's not just these two boys, is it? You wonder why a teenager picks up a gun in America... Plows or it gets inside of a primary school. You wonder why? Well, isn't that what we teach them? That this life has no meaning, that this life has absolutely nothing. If there's only meaninglessness in life, there's no consequences in, in life as well. If all you're looking for is to die and nothing else will come of it, there's no judgment, there's no God, there's no. If we tell them this and they, they, invite this of course of course that's why I say we're an HGV going down the hill no brakes on and these things you're seeing they're not the the the, the worst of you're just starting I'm gonna to have to perhaps either move forward for next Sunday or come back to this because there's much here that I want to say but what is it about our society? If Paul was here today, if Paul was to come to, to London and walk around the streets and be provoked by the idolatry that we have, I don't think I need to convince you of this. I've done the, uh, 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 we spoke about it uh, last week. What would he say to us? What would he say about this this nation, this city, this district? A brother who I was reading this week, he he thought about this, and I, I'm going to use him as a uh, an inspiration, and imagine what Paul would have said to us. He would say, "Men and women of London, as I walk down your streets and as I walk through your through your city beautiful city i perceive that in everything you're very religious very superstitious i perceive that you are very religious as i walk around your streets and i saw the 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 temple where where you that you call stadiums you worship your sports deities as I walked through your streets and I saw your uh, science buildings and your, your hospitals where you worship and place uh, your faith in, in the NHS for the salvation of man. I also, as I walked, found an altar, uh, a gallery where you worship the fine arts, where the fine arts are, 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 are there without any subservience to any greater power. I walked around your streets and I saw your sex goddesses and posters all over the place. I saw your, your, your advertisement for, the, for the, the, God, uh, the gods of wine and drinking and drugs. I saw all of it. Yet as I walked with you, Paul would say, I'm sure in some way I saw the emptiness of your life. I saw the emptiness of your heart. I perceive that there is still an altar in your heart to an unknown God that you perhaps think might be there, but you don't know. That you have a sense that there is something more. That you have a sense that there is something else lying beneath the surface of this all. That there is indeed meaning and purpose. Because every man and woman has a sense of purpose in life. A sense that this cannot be all of it. That you have a sense that there is more to life than this humanistic, paganistic culture that indulges in self I would suppose that Paul would say to this this person, that God you don't know, I want to proclaim to you. And I'm not saying that this should be how we go about telling people about God. That people that don't know God, that deny His existence. But that is the point we need to touch. That God is a creator, and I... And God is not only the creator, he is the judge. That's where Paul goes to re- He He talks about a God who is near, something that the Epicureans would deny. He talks about a God who will judge. In fact, Paul is in this collision course with them. He's not asserting them. He's not giving them the. He's not telling them that, well, we're basically on the same level. You're very intellectual. Let's have this intellectual debate. We often want to do that, don't we? We meet an atheist and we want to go, okay, let's let's take our presuppositions apart. Let's meet in the common ground, let's, neutral ground, let's have this discussion. You basically put God in the dock. And you say, well, let's judge God. Paul doesn't do that, does he? He says, no, God will judge you. You will be judged by God. God is not in the dark. You are the one who is under the judgment of God. And the only reason why we still stand, Paul would say, is because of God's forbearance. Because of God's forbearance. Because in the times of ignorance, God has, often, has overlooked up until now. But he now commands all men everywhere to repent. Isn't that what we do, so, we fail to do so often? You meet an atheist, and you want to get into this intellectual, philosophical debate about the existence of God, and you go, oh, uh, let me tell you about the teleological argument for the existence of God. You probably don't say it like that. But I've heard people say it like that. I know I did it like that. Oh, you know the moral argument for the existence of God? I'll tell you about the moral argument for the existence of God. Perhaps you don't do that. Perhaps you do the uh, a more appropriately, but uh, Sunday schoolish kind of proof for God, which is fine. We all do it. Do you realize that Paul does nothing of that here? You know God exists. You know God exists. And he tells them, he will judge you. I think the most controversial thing that Paul said, well, second to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I, that's controversial as well. But the most jarring thing that Paul said to them is that is that, is that God is to be worshipped exclusively. It was Paul's ex, ex, uh, exclusivity here. That's why they, they were so appalled with his message He's saying to them, it's either Christ or damnation. There's no two ways about it. There's not a third way. That's it. That's what I meant. There's not a third way. You either go to Christ or you go to hell. You're either in the right course or you're in the wrong course. You see, far I need to finish this. (laughs) But far from giving them a low calorie meal. far from giving them a a, a, a low-calorie sermon, far from validating anything of of what they believed, Paul is on this collision course with them and their theology and their misconceptions. He tells them, your religion will kill you. You think your religion will save you? You think your religion will clear you? You think your collision will, will uh, your wisdom will accomplish anything? Paul says it's ignorance. Do you, do you understand the significance of coming to an Athenian and saying you're an ignorant? The times of ignorance. You're ignorant. You think you know all of this? says to them god has been unbelievably patient with you he has been patient while we were building these all these altars f- fashioning all these idols of gold and silver and and bronze he has been patient because every one of these statues every one of these altars it slanders it blasphemes the name of god So now therefore he says to them God commands you to repent. Repent. When God commands us to do something it is not an invitation. He's not saying to them raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your savior. He's not saying to them "Uh, come forward. He's not saying to them Go and fix up, tear down those statues now. Uh, and then come and, and, and make, a, make the, all these things right. And then come and, and uh, uh, we'll talk about salvation. He's telling them repent. Yes, they will. repentance involves tearing down those statues, those idols. Repentance involves praying to God, giving in their life to Christ. Repentance involves all of that. But repentance is the freeness of the offer of the gospel. You're not to do anything. Paul says, I don't want you to go now. If you want to be safe from this judgment to to come, first you need to go do this and that. First you need to go and, and accomplish this and that. No, Paul is saying, sit down, repent. Stop whatever you're doing. That is the message of the gospel. Not do, but Receive. Brothers and sisters, that's the message that we have to preach to this society. Our society is just like the Athenian city in Greece, in Achaia, in the days of Paul. The prevailing philosophies of the day in our Western society are just as paganistic, just as uh, human. humanistic creation worship we worship science we worship empiricism but it's pantheism at the end of the day it is also remarkably close to the day of paul to the days of paul in athens we have our stoics we have our intellectual elites We have our Epicureans, we have our our agnostic and atheists. R.C. Sproul, the the American pastor, he, uh, he said that at the beginning of the 21st century, we are living in almost the exact intellectual climate that Paul encountered in Athens at that time. Both the materialistic deism of the Epicureans... The spiritualistic pantheism of the Stoics are pervasive in our contemporary culture. For the typical postmodern Western man, materialist, deist or pantheist, human existence has no higher meaning. Consequently, what matters is to enjoy life and not let its lack of meaning and purpose bring us down. Does the city affect you like it affected Paul? Does the lostness of souls in your street affect you like it affected Paul? Are you indignated? Not to to be propelled. Notice what Paul didn't do in Athens. He was indignated with the with the, with the idolatry, Paul didn't pick up a sledgehammer and start breaking them down one by one. Recently read uh, uh, about the, the Puritan, William Gardiner. was a Pur- Puritan? I tend to call everyone a Puritan. I do apologize. Sixteenth century, 17th century. William Gardiner, martyr. And what caught my attention was that he died in Lisbon, my, uh, in my country. He came into a mass in the Roman Catholic Church. And he saw the, the priest wave the wafer. And he became so indignant at the, the idolatry. That he rose up he picked up the wafer of the, of the priest's hand. He threw it on the floor. He stepped on it the king of portugal at the time was present in that mass a great commotion arose he was stabbed eventually uh, they saved his life because they wanted him to be burned on the stake and then he was burned on the stake now what am, why am i saying this he had his reasons to do that and there is something of a of a Righteous indignation that we should have. But I think, and I would propose to you, that the, the first port, if there is a time where righteous indignation does come and we should be more strong minded uh, or more righteously indignated in our actions. I would submit to you that Paul's action here is, uh, should be our default. He saw it. He was indignated. He was not indifferent. And he went and preached the gospel. Are you indignated are you, or are you indifferent? Because if you're indifferent, I submit to you that you don't have the spiritual eyesight. You should pray that the Lord would give you wisdom to see We cannot become insensible to the spiritual ignorance around us, to the spiritual ignorance of those who profess themselves to be wise because became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of the image of corruptible man. We need to be indignated to start proclaiming the gospel more. I often shy away from saying we we need to do this, we need to do that. But that is what we need to do. Our gospel proclamation is very severely lacking in our day. Yes, we are not as... Christian churches are not as big as they once used to be. They are not as... uh, uh, Young as they once used to be. But we need to start preaching more. And it's not just the, the, the outreach programs that church puts on. And we need to join the, the outreach team, the door-to-door or, or the, the Sunday school. It's not just that. That's good and that's proper. But we need to start preaching the gospel. The streets and the squares and the, and the, the, the avenues and the, and the parks of our city are there. They are our marketplace, as they were for Paul. Our schools, our colleges, our universities, our workplaces, they are our aeropagus. And we are to know the people we are ministering to. I'm not going to go further there. But know this. We are in an increasingly atheistic, biblically illiterate society. We need to learn how to lead them to Christ. How to reach them and how to lead them to Christ. But let us do so trusting God. Trusting His power. Because it is the power of God that will save them. The gospel is the power of God. We so often, I heard this, and I'm convicted by this. I'm convicted by this because I I know I've failed. I know I've sinned in this way. I heard this recently. We so often excuse ourselves with our Reformed theology. If people will be saved, it's, it's not in our hands, is it? God has elected them from eternity past, we say. And God will do what he has to do and we cannot do anything about it. And we, we our reformed theology, I wouldn't say our reformed theology betrays us because our reformed theology is beautiful and put into right practice. But our practice betrays our hyper-Calvinism. No one here would put their hands up if I ask, are you an hyper-Calvinist? If you don't know what it is, I do apologize. Some of us know what it is. Uh, And you can come after the service and ask, what is hyper-Calvinism? And I'll tell you. Is anyone here an hyper-Calvinist? No, no one would put their hands up. I wouldn't be an hyper-Calvinist. But your practice many times betrays your profession. You say you're not. But you act as if you are. We act as if we are. I'm saying this personally to me. I act as if I am. I I lull myself into a sense of lethargy so often because well God will do what he wants to do. He's sovereign. Someone is saying this. And I know I need to finish, but when the the Lord Jesus came to to the disciples, at that point where they couldn't heal the the that p- person with epilepsy the person possessed and the lord jesus said well you lack faith you lack faith because if you had faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed you would tell this mountain to move and the mountain would move and you go, wait, 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 wait. But I'm a Calvinist. Uh, I need to interpret that in a Calvinistic way. So you're saying it's my fault? Jesus said it was their fault. Oh, but No, 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 no. It's the will of God. That's why the churches are empty. That's why our, our church life is crumbling and failing. It's the will of God. God says, no, no, no. You get that wrong. It's because of your lack of faith. Because if you had faith the size of a grain of mustard, you would tell this mountain to move and the mountain would move. And of course, our Lord Jesus is not talking about physical mountains, he's talking about the spiritual mountains, like the spirit that they couldn't cast out. But he says very much to them it's your lack of faith. It's your lack of faith. In another parallel passage says it's some demons, it's only by, the, by prayer and fasting. Again, prayer and fasting. Yes, it's the power of God. Yes, it's the will of God. But you need to pray and fast. But you need to go. You need to do. Do you really believe that the world is full of idolaters? That this world is in desperate need for salvation? That they need to know God? Then go! Don't excuse yourself with Calvinism. Because the greatest evangelists in the history of this world were Calvinists. Because they knew it's a, it's a mountain right there. But I have a, a God who can move mountains. They had the faith. The size of a grain of mustard seed. But they went... Rather than lull us into complacency and lethargy, it should propel us to action, believing in the sovereignty of God. Well let me say this, to finish. Do you know this God? I have some children here. Do you know this God? Have you trusted him? Have you repented of your sin? Have you committed yourself to Jesus? Have you come to Christ? If you have not, Paul says to you, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he asks you, do you think, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? While despising the riches of his mercy? That's what Paul said to the Athenians. That's what Paul says to, said to the Romans. Why do you think you will escape judgment? You see, there is no niceties, humanly speaking, in the proclamation of the gospel message, there is good news. But there is no niceties. It is a hard, it is an urgent, it is a message preached by dying men to dying men. Judgment is coming. And the gospel and trusting Christ is not an optional extra that you add on to your life to make your life just that little bit much better. It is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death in our day as it was in Paul's day. It is a matter that needs to be well thought through by us. Paul's message on Mars Hill calls us to repentance, calls us to new life, and challenges us to proclaim the gospel of our Savior to a needy world that they too might enter into life in him. May the Lord help us to do so.